Good morning, Northside. We are beginning a new study in the book of Haggai, so I'd ask that you would please take your Bibles and turn there. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Now, before we start in the study, I want to start with a magic trick, and so maybe you can uh, sit up in your beds, maybe quit eating your cereal at this point, or quit throwing things at your children. But here I have a red apple. Now, the problem is, is Pastor Jeff does not like red apples. I like green apples. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make this red apple become a green apple. So let's take it. We'll take it, put it in my hands, and I'll be trying to rub it. And then, boom, it is a green apple. Now I can eat it. Now here's part of the problem. In regards to magic, there's a thing that we call an illusion. So what happens is this is a red apple because it's just a balloon that's put over top of the green apple. And so all you do is when you take it in the palm of your hand, you can see the red part, but you can't see the green part. Now the reality is, is once I start to pull, the balloon itself just rolls right off the apple and you have the green apple now that's the idea of magic it's an illusion it's a trick but what happens is a lot of times our illusions become disillusions meaning that we find ourselves struggling so children find out when the truth about their heroes in childhood or when young people find that the world is not always fair and maybe even is cruel. Or maybe people become disillusioned when they find out the church is not perfect. It's full of tainted, sinful people. Or maybe someone has said that they're your friend, but you found that they were the first one to sell you out in regards to something. So we become disillusioned because we find the things to be or things that we thought were true aren't true are they become harder than what we imagined them to be? Well, this is where we find ourselves in regards to Haggai. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll start to look at the background. We'll see the rebuke that God gives to the people and to the leadership, and then we'll see how he gives us an encouragement as we change our priorities from that of our kingdom to God's kingdom. So let's look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we start a new series in your word, Father, you've already deemed that this was the book we were going to study. And so, Lord, it's apropos, it's your sovereignty that brings it here at this moment in time as we're dealing with the coronavirus. And so, Father, it is easy for us to become preoccupied with our own kingdoms at the expense of yours. 
And so, Father, I do pray that as we study this word, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to truly give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. Lord, that you would draw us back to yourself, Lord, that you would allow us to live as those whose world is not of this world. But we look to that day, and then, Lord, as Mike has already read for us, Lord, that we would see that our lives are different. We've taken off the old and we've put on the new. So, Father, allow us to hear this. Allow us to apply it. And, Lord, that we would give you all the glory and honor because of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is the background to the book of Haggai. And so we're going to look at some very specific things. We're going to look at the prophet. We're going to look at the return from captivity itself. And then we're going to look at the temple in regards to the background. So the prophet. So the first thing we look at is the person. We know his name is Haggai, and he was probably born during a festival time because that's part of what his uh, name means, is he was probably someone who was born during one of the festivals for the Israelites. And so uh, he was named Haggai, but he was also probably someone who was well-known in the small Judean, Judean community. Why do we say that? Well, if you look at the book of Ezra, they simply name Haggai the prophet. They don't name him. They don't have to specify. He's known simply as the prophet. So he was someone who is probably well known in the Judean community. He was possibly, probably someone who was older as well. And we get that from the course of the, the, the thing of he was probably someone who sold the old temple, who saw the grandeur of the old temple and then was therefore someone who's older in age. So that's the person of Haggai, but he was given for a purpose. Now, the reality was, is that the people were supposed to go back and build a temple, but it's now been 15 years when Haggai comes upon the scene. And so what he does, is he brings four prophecies, four encounters with the people where he brings God's accusation. There's a response from the people, and then he gives them assurance from God. So we have the person, the purpose, but he's also a post-exilic prophet. So that they think about the time frame as 521, 520 BC, and the post-exilic prophets are these, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, they're post-exilic because of the return from captivity. So if you understand your history, captivity came from Babylon in 587, 586 and this is the time where the temple and the city of Jerusalem are plundered and they're destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he removes a lot of the people and there's multiple leavings from Jerusalem and the Judean community to other places in Babylon. However, Babylon doesn't stay there very long. And so what happens is the Persians come in. And they have a victory. And so in 538, 537, we have what's known as the Cyrus Edict. And it's Cyrus or Cyrus um, who allows the captives to return to their own homelands. And so he was a, a very benevolent king in essence. And so he didn't want the people to stay in captivity. He allows them to go back to their homes. Now the reality is as he begins to allow these people to go back, um, there's some people who have become comfortable. And what I mean by that is they give an approximate number of about 50,000 people leave Babylon to go back 
to Jerusalem. Only 50,000. And there's a great number who stayed because they found that it was more comfortable to stay in the land of captivity because they were making money now. They were marrying into different families. They, um, they were making a decent living. They were having uh, new friends, enjoying times. And so to go back to Jerusalem, that's a, that's a step back. Think of it this way. Think of it of people who come from other countries to America and they have children and the children begin to, uh, they know English better than their original languages. They understand the, the American culture better than their own culture. And so this becomes comfort. This becomes home for them. And so even though their parents talk about the culture back home, this is home for them. Well, it's the same thing for the people of God. They have become comfortable in the places where they were in Babylon. So only a small number go back to Jerusalem. But when they went back to Jerusalem, there was a a specific purpose for why they were to go back. Now, part of this comes from Cyrus because he's a pagan king who actually gives provisions and the opportunity to go back and build the temple. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because of who Cyrus was. Cyrus was someone who wanted to honor all the gods. He was pantheistic, he, so he didn't want to offend anybody. So he, hey, yeah, you want to build a temple to Jehovah? No problem. You want to build a temple to Baal? No problem. You want to build a temple to this? No problem. I want everybody to bless me. I want everyone to take care of me in battle. So yeah, go home, build your temple, honor your God. But the reality is, is even though that's Cyrus's understanding, it's not the people of God's understanding. For the people of God, if we understood the the purpose behind the tabernacle and the temple, it's God's presence with his people. And so it's, in in essence, it's Emmanuel, God with us. And so the people were supposed to go home to Jerusalem and build the temple so that they can show forth that God was their God and he was with them. But the reality is, is that when they went back, all they got done was the altar And the foundation was laid, and now they find themselves stalled for about at least 15 years, if not more. So that's our background to the book of Haggai, the the person, the purpose, and the temple. But God begins to give a rebuke. Now, he gives the rebuke to two different groups. He gives a rebuke to the people, and he gives a rebuke to the leadership. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. Now, I want you to see, because it says to these people, to these people. Now, it's a rebuke because God typically said about the people, they're my people. But at this portion of scripture, he says these people. And so he's giving them a rebuke of you haven't been following what I've been telling you. He also gives them rebuke in regards to timing. He says these people say the time has not yet come. But then he gets to verse four and he says, it is a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. God is rebuking them. He's saying, you're saying these things to me. And I'm saying the time is right for you to come back to your Lord, for you to understand that it is God who needs to be with you, not apart from you. This is something that we need to apply to the church even. Now let's make it very applicable and turn to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at one of the seven churches that God speaks to. And we're looking specifically at the church in Laodicea. Now this is the lukewarm church that we know of. And so listen to the word. 
I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but so you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you might be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you might see. For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, to be zealous and to repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. For he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it's a warning to us, and again, we have a verse here that's usually taken out of context, because the people a lot of times take, behold, I stand at the door and knock, as if Christ is saying that to non-Christians. What I want you to understand is that God's coming to the church, and God has been kept out of the church. And so what's happening here, he's saying, you've become a lukewarm church, and what you're, at, in essence, they're doing is you're having church without Jesus. We've completely kept him out. And it's the same thing that Haggai is saying to the people. You have become so preoccupied with your own kingdom, you've forgotten about God's kingdom. It's the church in Laodicea. You've become lukewarm. You care more about your things than God's things. And so God brings a rebuke to this people, but he also brings a rebuke to the leadership because they are going on right now with wrong priorities. Now, again, in this first part of the passage, we have the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. Now, they're there because in the Old Testament, they were there for accountability. They were there to make sure that everybody kept the main things the main thing. But here's what's happened. There's no longer a priest that's confronting the king, and the king is no longer confronting the prophet. So the prophet comes with the word of the Lord, and that's through Haggai. And what's happened is there's been disillusionment. So they, they've come back, but things were not what they expected. And so Haggai comes and he says he comes with the word and it comes from God. It comes through the prophet, but it's to come to rebuke and encourage the people to do what is right and good. And not only does he come and rebuke the, the leadership, but he also in the same manner gives hope. Now, how do we know that? Well, because we're given the name of Zerubbabel, who is the son of Shittiel, who's the son of Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim is the last known king from the line of David. And so 2 Kings 24, 15 talks about Zerubbabel becoming this governor. And so God is giving us this hope, even in the midst of, of his rebuke, he's saying, hey, I've provided you the line of David. I've told you there would never be a time where this line is not continued to be established. And it goes all the way through Christ. And so he brings this line of David and continues it on through Zerubbabel because God is always faithful and he fulfills his promises, listen, even in the worst of times. 
And that's an encouragement for us. It gives us hope today that no matter the situation we find ourselves in regards to coronavirus, God is faithful. He will always fulfill his promises, even in the worst of times. And so we've seen the background to the letter of Haggai. We've seen his rebuke to the people and to the leadership. But he also wants us to change our priorities. Now he starts off by saying our priorities have become perverted. And what do I mean by that? Well, the first thing is there becomes a normalcy. See, what's happened is the people have now been walking around for at least 15 years to see the temple in ruins. It's just commonplace. Oh, there's the temple. It's not finished. Who cares? It's just, that's how it's been. It's, it's like us in regards to our own personal worship sometimes. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not like this, but I know that there have been some people who said because they're out of their normal routine, it's been hard for them to spend time with the Lord. It's been hard for them to spend time in worship. It's been hard for them to keep up their their reading through the word of the Lord. It's hard for them to keep up their prayer time because mundane things, stupid things start to find their way in into our lives. Even there's a sense of it's become normal for us to now watch worship while we're in bed in our pajamas. And that's going to become a temptation for us. Man, church was a whole lot easier during the coronavirus because i could turn it on when i wanted to turn it on i could turn it off when i wanted to turn it off i could put it on a break i could be in my pajamas i could be in my bed i could be in my garage i could be in my bathroom i don't care it's just it's on my terms but what about that day when it's now back where we have the opportunity to come back together is it going to be too easy to say no i'll i'll wait till it comes out on the video See, it becomes normal. And when things start to become normal, if we can't withstand materialism, how can we ever hope to withstand fierce persecution and fascinating philosophies? If we can't deal with coronavirus God's way, then what's going to happen when people come to your home When people tell you, like they're saying in China right now, you can't even listen to online sermons because they're illegal. They're trying to have all the home churches ratted out. What do you do then? See, it's this thing where normalcy begins to then bring neglect. And that's what the people of God have done in regards to the temple It's a flagrant neglect. And what they've done is they've chose themselves in their kingdom over God's kingdom. And it says that they live in their paneled houses. And again, it could be luxury. It could be the paneling that's in the home. But there's also an understanding that it could be roofs. Hey, you've put roofs on your house, but there's not a roof on the temple. What's wrong with the picture? And so Haggai confronts them. Now, again, the reality is, is they had good excuses. We have good excuses. You know, there's, there's more kids at our house and more for more time. We're alone. Uh, there's things we can't go out and do what we want to do. Our, our daily lives are, are upset. I get it. And we can make excuses for why we're not worshiping. We can make excuses why we're not in the word. We can make excuses why we're not praying. And they would be good excuses. And that was the same for the people. They said it's too hard. 
It's too hard to build a temple. Because we came back to Jerusalem, we, came, we left Babylon, and everything was good there. Everything was already finished, but we came back, and all of the buildings and the wall and the temple, they're in disrepair. we got to build again. Man, I'm tired. And only that, there was droughts. And the fields had become overgrown. They weren't, they weren't tended anymore. So to come back now, the work in the fields was much harder. So things were way hard. But it's also too costly because the same people who were out in the land who were farmers were the same 50,000 people that had to come and build the temple. And they're tired and they're overwhelmed and they've been giving money to the land. They are also having to give money to the temple. And where are we going to get the materials? Yes, Cyrus gave us some stuff, but he didn't give us everything. And so how are we going to take care of this building But not only that, there was opposition. There was opposition within the church because some of the old people started to say, well, this temple doesn't look like the old one used to. The older one, now it was grand. And it was gold. And it was great and it was perfect. And now you youngins bring in and it's just wood. Not like the old days. So they were getting discouraged But only that, there was people on the outside because the Samaritans, as soon as he got back, the Samaritans said, hey, we want to help out and we want to help build the temple. Now, I I really do think it was for wrong reasons. I think they wanted to have a uh, a stake, in essence, into the temple. And the people, the Jewish people said, no. It'd be like if, if someone came here, if we had part of our church destroyed and the LGBT community came in and said, hey, we're going to help you rebuild. We'll give you some money. We'll help you put things in together and stuff like that. And our church says, not going to happen. Well, what do you mean it's not going to happen? Well, you don't believe what we believe. And we're not going to put up here um, rainbow curtains. And we're not going to sacrifice our basis just because you give money. Well, if you're not going to do that, then I know some people in the government. And we're going to shut you down. And that's what happened. The Samaritans shut down. The building program. They made it really, really hard for the people of God. And so what the people of God do? They quit building. They focused on themselves. And they stopped worrying about God's kingdom. So we need to make sure that our priorities that are perverted go to priorities that are right and good. Why? Because one, it's God's glory and honor. We can't settle for our own. Ours is fleeting. Listen, when the people of God did it for God's glory and did it in his ways, we begin to see things like miracles. Remember God's glory in regards to Joshua 6 where he he sends the people in. And what do they do? They walk around Jericho. They just walk around it. And they give shouts. And on the seventh day, all they do is they walk around seven times and they shout out. And it says the walls fell down and they had the Ark of the Covenant there with them. God was fighting the battle. They didn't have to use any warfare according to man's standards. God did it. God gave them the city. But yet the reality is we start messing it up. And if you were to go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, this is where the people of God are fighting the Philistines and they start getting defeated by the Philistines. 
And so what do the people do? They go, hey, I remember when we defeated Jericho and those other cities, we had the Ark of the Covenant. God was with the people and we didn't bring out the Ark of the Covenant. So let's go back. We'll get the Ark of the Covenant. We'll come out here. God will kick some Philistine booty and we'll be all good. And what happens? They're routed because the people weren't fighting with God's glory and honor in mind. They thought the the Ark of the Covenant was a good luck charm. Hey, if, if we can just have this object, then we're going to be okay. The object has nothing to do with it. It's God who has everything to do with it. It's like if we were to take the, the cross off or, or go in there and steal the cross from the Koreans or whatever, we, we grab it around and we start showing the, the cross around. It does nothing for us. It's a symbol. It's only when God is moving is there any power. And so we need to make sure that we give the better glory and honor to God. The second thing is we get a better mission. Why was God so singularly important to have the temple rebuilt? It's so that we could show the world that God was with his people. God was with his people. It's the same way with us and the Holy Spirit. How do they know that we have the Holy Spirit? It's Colossians 3 that Mike read for us. There's a difference about us. We love differently. We, we do things differently. We put off the old and we put on the new. Our vision is different of how we look at life. Is it a struggle? Yes. I'm sad to say we were, we were out and we were um, delivering some stuff to get rid of. And there's a lady who saw that we had some paper towels in our, in our van. And she said, oh, you found some paper towels. Yes. Where, where did you find them? We found them at Publix. At this time, it was yesterday, I think it was the day before that we found them. You should probably go and see if you can find some too. I haven't been able to find paper towels anywhere. And so my wife at this point, again, being the good Christian that I'm not, was just like, well, should we give them some of our paper towels? And I said, no, no, don't give them our paper towels. We planned, we did what we were supposed to do. I can't help it that they didn't plan to go out and get their paper towels like they're supposed to. Why would we give her our paper towels? We need our paper towels. And we definitely would give it to somebody in the church before we give it to some pagan. Then I had to repent. Because I wasn't, I was thinking only about me. Again, I didn't take time to pray. I didn't say, God, is this a a means for us to share how you're good, how your kingdom, even at the cost of myself? What does he tell us? What are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he always includes the love your neighbor as yourself. It's why we, we take this coronavirus seriously. It's, it's why we don't go out and cough on people. It's why we do listen to the government and stay home. Why? Because I don't want someone coughing on my wife. I don't want someone coughing on my children. I don't want someone coming and bringing the COVID into my home. That's not because I'm unloving. It's because I want to love them the way I love myself. And so it's this understanding that, again, God's kingdom is very different than our kingdom. It's a kingdom of love. And are we on the better mission for him? And then the last thing that it does when we have the right priorities is we go to a better savior. 
Again, in this passage, we see that there's a prophet, a priest, and a king. And those are the offices that Jesus fulfills perfectly. He is the perfect prophet. He is the word, not a word, the word. He is the perfect priest. He is that perfect sacrifice. And he is the perfect king who rules perfectly. And so we look to that perfection. And as we look to that perfection, we understand that it is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And as he is with us, even now he says he sits at God's right hand. And we are there with him because we're in him. And he intercedes and goes to God who is faithful to all of his promises. And he says these people, they're overwhelmed. They have excuses and they're preoccupied. But Father, forgive them and give them the vision that you've given to me to go into all the world and to share the good news of the gospel. See, it's easy to become disillusioned. But don't allow disillusionment to allow us because we know the truth. And the truth sets us free and allows us to take action. So the question as we begin to look at this book, the book of Haggai, is whose kingdom are we preoccupied with? Our own or God's? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the challenge set before us. And Father, we do need to hear the rebuke. Because it is too easy to think about me and my house and my needs and my timing, and my purposes. And yet, Father, in your goodness, and in your mercy, and in your great love for us, you do not allow us to become selfish, bratty children. But you discipline us. You love us with an undying love, a perfect love. And so, Father, you put us in a position where you call our actions into question. And so, Father, I do pray that we have been given over to your kingdom and not our own. And so, Father, truly change us by the Spirit who brought you back from the dead and it has that power to transform us, not just to change our actions, but to transform who we are into the likeness of our Savior. Father, truly teach us through this book and allow us to build your kingdom both here and, Lord, even around the world. For we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.